0: Hebrews chapter 4. So you all know that um, our harvest festivals today, and I specifically started calling it harvest festival instead of fall festival, because as all of you know, fall festival means something totally different in our valley, right? Because that's what, next week? And that's going to consume the whole week. And so um, to me, I, I didn't want people to be confused, but I waited three years or two years before I change the name. So I'm really <laughs> quick on things. But that said, um, 4 o'clock today at the Pursley's, uh, rain or shine, if it is raining, we will be inside and we're going to have some fun. And if you want and you can't find anything to do, I will beat you at Wee Golf like there's no tomorrow. I've been practicing. So, <laughs> hey, I can't beat Stephen Pursley at literally anything, but Wii Golf, I destroyed him. Just saying. I'm not proud of myself at all. Thank you, Lord. So, all right, Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, You know, I think sometimes we read it and we don't understand it just because we are having trouble uh, seeing things through your eyes. But I think sometimes uh, we don't understand your word because there's so much more context to what it says than we even realize. There's There's so many prequels. And so, Father, this morning, as we kind of do a survey through Scripture about the high priest, and as we look at Jesus being our high priest now, Lord, I pray for wisdom, and I pray for clarity, and I pray for understanding, without which we may as well close our Bibles and go home. Lord, we're here to seek your word, so we need you to draw near to us, give us the ability to see through the lens of Scripture Jesus, in all of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we open up Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, you'll notice that I'm starting with verse 11 through 13, which is where we ended last week. Last week's passage was about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And you could see through the ministry of Moses how the Israelites would have this tendency to see Moses as a God himself. He, He lifted his staff and he parted the Red Sea. He delivered the children of Israel out of a nation that had them in bondage for 400 years. Just walked in and took them out. And he, by his word, explained that these certain plagues would happen. And so if you saw an individual do this, you'd have a tendency to go, wow, that guy's a god. But the reality was, is he was a mouthpiece for God. He was a prophet. And so as he delivered them... Uh, we see that Jesus really was better than Moses in every possible way. And then he talked about angels and how Jesus is better than the angels because angels are created, and yet Jesus is God over the angels. And so in verse 11 through 13 last week, we finished having spoken about the fact that the Israelites never entered into, some of them, the rest that God had planned for them. That many of them, when they were delivered from Egypt into the wilderness... They wandered there for 40 years because they did not believe what God said. Simply. That's not an understatement. They just didn't experience abundant life in the land that God promised them because they simply heard the word that God said through the prophets and yet didn't believe it. And so um, the warning becomes, verse 11, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example disobedience. When we hear God's word and we don't believe it, it leads to disobedience. And so he says, let us be diligent to enter the rest. So our task I have for you on the slide is to be diligent at entering rest. Now, how many of you, if you think about rest, do you think about working hard to get into it? Some of us might. We're Midwesterners. I grew up under the mantra, work hard, play hard. But the problem is we end up working hard, working hard, working hard. And and many of us, we stop getting to the point where we're like, okay, I'm going to work hard now so I can relax this afternoon. And it grows to this, I'm going to work hard all the hours of my life now so that when I get to retirement, then I can rest. But what we're seeing is many times when people do that, even physiologically, they stress themselves out so much for their entire life, they never live to see retirement. And the reality is, even if you're not the stress filled person that many people are in our society, you could get hit by a car and never see retirement. So there's all these things that can keep us from entering into rest. And I think sometimes we think that God's rest for us is heaven. But what we find through Scripture is that rest can be had in the labor, rest can be had while we're laboring. We can find joy and peace in doing what God gives us to do, and yet not be stressed over it. Now, many of you are going, I don't think that's possible. But the reality is, is that it is scripturally. So we're going to look at that this morning. But he says, he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter rest, lest any one of us fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, he transitions quickly and he goes, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so he talks about being diligent to enter into rest, and then he immediately starts talking about the Word of God. And From our example of the Israelites, if they had heard the word of God, believed them, trusted them, and obeyed them, they would have experienced the rest. And so his admonition to us is to receive from God the word of God, believe it, trust it, and and I have for you there that relationships require trust. How many of you have a relationship that's ongoing, that if there's no trust, there's really not a relationship? And yet if there is trust, there's this bond that is not easily broken. And so um, he said, I have for you there that relationships require trust, and that's true with human relationships, and that's true with our relationship with God. We have to trust Him, and true trust results in obedience. I always, when, when I'm talking to my daughter, and I've asked her to do something, and she's like, I'm not doing it, I'm, do you trust me? Most of the time, she's just scared that if she does it, that it either won't go well or something like that. And I just ask her, I don't ask her, why aren't you obeying me? Sometimes I just ask her, don't you trust me? And then when she says, yeah, yeah I do, actually. You've got a pretty good track record. I mean, it's not perfect, but you've got a good track record. Then she goes, okay, I'll obey daddy. And, and that's, that can be had with our Lord. So what has God done? Our task is to be diligent to enter into rest. But what has God done? He's given us words to live by. He's spoken through Jesus. but His word is what does all the work. His word is what teaches us to trust Him. His word is what gives us peace for our souls. His word is what tells us what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. And so what is our task? We've already said it's to be diligent to enter into rest, enter into rest, but our task is to simply listen and obey. There's an old hymn that says, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to simply trust and obey. All we have to do is believe and respond to what he says. And who do we answer to? The one who gave us the instructions. God himself, he says that in verse 13. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verse 15. I'm going to turn there real quick because he talks about this very thing. If I would have marked my pages, I'd be there already. 2nd 2 Timothy 2:15 2, says this. He says, "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." So he's talked about the word of truth in Hebrews, and then he, in this passage, Paul writes to Timothy, be diligent, remember we're talking about being diligent to enter into rest, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Now, how much of your energy do you spend trying to present yourself to a person approved? Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man is a trap. But the fear of the Lord, those who fear the Lord will be safe. Many of us spend all of our waking hours, our energy, trying to live a life and be approved by the people around us. And sometimes that's healthy. But many times I think it comes in front of our trying to be approved in the eyes of God. Not trying to gain his approval, but trying to live a life that he approves of. A life that he looks at and says, I'm pleased. Because as Christians, jesus we follow jesus christian means little christ we are to live in a way that uh we look like a little christ we look like jesus and so um but in order to regularly submit yourself to the word of god and let him do what he must to make you more like his son it has to start with relationship so we're back to that piece relationship with god starts with dealing with our sin and how do we deal with our sin I don't know about you guys, but I think most people walk around not dealing with their sin and carrying guilt and carrying shame. Shame is what caused Adam and Eve in the garden when Eve partook of the fruit and ate it, even though God had said not to. And then Adam ate of it too. The first response that they had to their sin was not to go to to God and say, we messed up. How many times have you wished your kids would just come to you and say, hey, I messed up. And then you can fix it. But no, they don't. They hide it. They shove it under their bed. Or they put the assignment back in the back of the drawer. The, the project that was coming up for three weeks, they didn't tell you about. And then the night before, they go, hey, uh, I got a project that's due tomorrow. And then you scramble, right? And then mom and dad are incredibly angry. And they should be because you had time. They want to help. And yet, because you didn't come to them and say, hey, I got a project coming up, they couldn't help. But God knows already that we've sinned against Him. God knows He's already provided forgiveness. And yet many times, we, like the the kid in school that doesn't tell his parents about the project, we go, you know what, this will go away. But it doesn't. Shame. And so Adam and Eve, when they messed up, they didn't go to God, but instead they hid themselves. Who sought them out? It was God. God responded he, he, he said, you know what, I, I'm going to go and check on them. He knew what they had going on, and he, he didn't say, what have you done, you, you know, he didn't start calling names. He just said, Adam, Eve, where are you? He knew exactly where they were, but he wanted them to confess to him where they were. He said, well, we ate of the tree. And of course, Adam goes, she told me to, you know, and then, and then she said, well, Satan made me do it. You know, and and the blame game starts, and from that point on, we've spent, we haven't learned anything new. It's all the same. We play the blame game. And so uh, here, what we find out is that if we have a sin problem, God's Word is there to reveal it to us. We deceive ourselves, but that's it. We don't deceive God. So God's Word points out our sin. Now, how many of you like to have your faults pointed out? Yeah, me neither. I hate it, but... God doesn't point out our sins to us to make us feel bad. He points out our sins to us so that we can be healed of them because sin creates death and destruction in our lives, but God restores and makes things new. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing when it's done correctly. And forgiveness is like ointment on a burn. It just soothes and it makes new. It heals. But without that, it's just a festering wound and so shame and guilt and sin. So relationship with God starts with dealing with our sin. So in order for that to happen in the Old Testament, God had these people called high priests. And they were the ones that were descendants of Aaron who traveled through the wilderness into the promised land. And Aaron was a type of Christ. And what we find out in verse 14 through 16 of chapter 4 is this. It says there, Seeing then, now I want to point this out. I know this is redundant, but in verse 13, he says, there's no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's a scary verse. I don't know about you guys, but I think about my past and the stuff I got going on. I know I'm a pastor now, but I wasn't always. And the reality is, is if I wouldn't even want you guys to know some of the stuff that I've done let alone my creator. So how do I deal with it unless it comes out in the open? Wait a minute, this verse says it already is. That closed sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. I don't like that. My daughter used to say that all the time. I don't like that. You know, um, so what it says here, though, in the very next verse is, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The high priest in the Old Testament was the only person that could make a sacrifice on behalf of the sinner. If you sinned, you didn't go to your brother or sister in Christ and go, hey, I've sinned against God, and I need you to pray with me so I can be healed. Instead, they would go to the temple. And in the old days, when they just had the tabernacle in the middle of the camp, they would set up the camp, and you'd have... Four groups of three tribes apiece, and then in the middle of this million people community was the tabernacle where there was continually incense being burned and coming out of the top of the tabernacle. That's where you met with God, in the middle of God's people. So if I sin and I killed somebody, or if I committed adultery, or if I did any of the things that I would be ashamed of, guess what I got to do? I've got to grab my little lamb, my spotless lamb, to make a sacrifice. And then I've got to walk in between everybody, all the way up to the temple, and everybody knew what that meant. There's sin in the camp, and he's going to get forgiveness. That feels like more shame going up there, right? You feel condemned as you're walking up to there. You feel like you're actually walking to the electric chair. But what you're doing is you're going to the only place where relief can be had and forgiveness. Forgiveness was public, and so they would go all the way to the altar, they would have the Levitical priesthood that would cut up and kill and slit the throat of the animal, the blood would be spilled out and be poured onto the altar by the priest, and after that there would be supplications and prayers on your behalf, and then forgiveness. So all of these things pointed to a reality of Jesus. And so here we have, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, in our context, we're like, what does that mean? But in their context, for a Jewish Christian, they'd be like, I know what that means. That means that's where forgiveness is had. Jesus, the Son of God, He's our confession. He says, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But look at this. Our high priest, Jesus, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted to sin. Jesus was tempted in every possible way, and we're going to get there. Yet, he says, verse 16, let us therefore, because we have this high priest that can be sympathetic, he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So Aaron was the Old Testament high priest and all of his descendants. What we know about him is that he passed through the veil. When he would go and make an offering, he would walk into the Holy of Holies. There was an outer court where everybody could be. There was an inner court where the Levitical priesthood could be. And then one time a year, the high priest would actually enter in to where they had the Ark of the Covenant. And You can't really see it in the picture, but there was cherubim on the top. There was a mercy seat and the offering would be made there. And the idea was, underneath that mercy seat was manna. There was the the rod that Aaron carried that budded, that proved that he was the priest. And um, there were several other things. But he would go in there, and he would beseech on behalf of the nation, God. He would walk in, and he would represent God to the people when he walked out, and he would represent people to God while he's in there. No one else could enter. But what we find is that he passed through a veil. If you read in the New Testament, when Jesus was destroyed, he was killed on the cross. And on the day that he died, there was great darkness. What it says is that the veil was torn from top to bottom. That veil was removed, meaning that the presence of God could be accessed by anybody that came by faith in the blood of Jesus and so there's so much more that goes along with that but the high priest would enter in through the veil of the holy of holies. Jesus, our great high priest, look at this, it says that he passed through the heavens. Now, we think about heaven, we think about a place where God is and the angels are sitting on clouds playing their little harp. That's not biblical heaven, but that's an idea from Looney Tunes, you know. <laughs> but heavens multiple he's talking about our atmosphere to the water can or the you know the o3 the atmosphere and then he, he goes all the way through the heavens the planetary galaxy and then he goes to a place called heaven the third heaven paul speaks about it in corinthians chapter 12 and the third heavens is where god exists that's where his throne is the earth is his footstool the psalmist right and so He's passed through the heavens and what it says there, Jesus, the Son of God, has gone through the heavens and He is no longer in what was to be a type of meeting with God, but now He's actually in heaven with God and able to intercede for us. Do you know that Scripture teaches that Jesus, when He ascended from the Mount of Olives, He actually went to the right hand of the Father, the hand of power, and He now sits on the throne, and he intercedes for us. He talks to his father about us, his people, all the time. I find this comforting because I need lots of prayer. Jesus is not finished working. He's still praying for us. And so uh, even Jesus doesn't retire, apparently. You know, he's got lots of work still to do, and he, but he's doing it in a chair from a place of rest. The work is finished. And so Aaron... He was from the tribe of Levi. He was from among men, but Jesus Christ, our high priest, is the Son of God. He's from heaven. Uh, Sinful, Aaron, sinful, has his own sin to deal with. When he would go in to make that sacrifice, before that, he would spend almost an entire day making sacrifices for himself and his own sins and confessing them to the Lord so that he could be cleansed, and then he could go in and make a sacrifice for us, but he's sinful. He has to deal with his own sin. God, Jesus, sinless and yet sympathetic. Many times, pastors, church leaders, we become kind of uh, have the idea that we got it all together, or feel like we have to portray that. But the reality is, is I'm no different than you guys. I got my own sin to deal with. My neighbor's here. He can tell you. You know, if I'm outside and something happens, I'm like. Oh, darn it! You know, I'm getting angry about things that I don't need to be angry about. And so, the reality is, is that um, Jesus is better than any high priest. That's why in the New Testament church, really, the Bible doesn't teach anything about even having a priest. And as we're seeing in our day and age, and I do not celebrate it, um, many people have said that Protestant churches would celebrate the, you know, the kind of the, the falling of, you know, the the priests in the Catholic church. I don't celebrate it because because of what's going on, and because of the scandal, and and the very real things of, you know, just the the sex scandals, and the the abuse of uh, church leadership, it's just, it's sad, because the reality is, whether those guys did it or not, the name of Christ is being blasphemed because of their example, but these men were placed in a position that's not biblical at all, because even Paul didn't say that every priest or every pastor should be without a wife. It's unnatural. It's unhealthy. Unless God's called you to be single, uh, you should not be single because you will burn in lust. And so um, what we see is that uh, Jesus is meant to be our high priest. There's no longer a New Testament priesthood. And, and But look at this. He offers sacrifices on the mercy seat, Aaron does, And yet, Jesus doesn't offer sacrifice. He's sitting on the throne of grace. He is the sacrifice. And then I have there for you Aaron cannot offer grace to help. He could only offer mercy by the covering of the sin by the blood of the Lamb. It's only temporary. And it was all leading up to when Jesus would give his life. And on the cross, he would even say, It is finished. We don't have to go and make any more sacrifices. He doesn't have to continually die on the cross again. He died once and for all, and His forgiveness is good for past sins. It's good for present sins. 1 John 1, 9 says that we can still go into Him and confess our sins, and He can cleanse us once again of all unrighteousness. So it's a forever forgiveness, and His sacrifice is once and for all. So, anyway, I just wanted to compare that Aaron, the high priest, With Jesus, our great high priest, because as I said before, the Hebrew Christians at this time, they're second generation Christians, and they're longing to go back to their religious system. But what the writer of Hebrews is actually saying is that you can go back if you want, but why would you? Jesus is so much better than everything you can go back to. Nobody wants to drive a Lamborghini and go back to a Cavalier. They just don't. You know, we've been given a Lamborghini, except so much more. Lamborghinis even need oil changes. And they're expensive ones, I bet. You know, you don't use 10W30 uh, Valvoline in there. You use, who knows? I don't, it's out of my deal. But anyway, I digress. So, verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can, com- he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he was. But it was he, meaning God, who said to him, and then he quotes one of the Psalms, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here we have this passage about Jesus' authority. Now, your authority means nothing to other people, unless they know who your authority was given to you by, right? So, for us, uh, in many cases, uh, we don't really care what our boss says except for the fact that he works for the owner, right? Or or maybe you don't care uh, what your parents say unless you recognize that they're your parents. I think that many people don't obey their parents because they don't recognize that God's the one that gave them their parents. They're to be submitted to them. Um, But, Jesus didn't get his authority from man. Jesus got his authority from God. He was chosen by God for offering sacrifices for sins. No man picks this. God chooses. And I have a picture for you there in the background of people, uh, men laying their hands on a man. But in the church, in the New Testament church, men don't decide that they get to be a pastor or not. I didn't step up one day and say, I want to be a pastor. Believe it or not, I didn't. Uh, what I did was I served God and, and tried to use my gifts, and, and one day my pastor said, I, th- I think you're called to be a pastor. I said, well, what do you mean by that? What's that? Where does that go? Okay, you know, <laughs> all right. Well, how do we know this? And he said, well, um, why don't you go try to plant a church and see if it works? You know, uh, we prayed about it, and and, and God was leading, and, and I was leading a youth group at the time in Farmington, and, and the reality was, though, I... You don't know you're a pastor. You don't know you're called to that unless it actually happens. You know, sometimes you just got to take a step of faith. But here we are five years later from when that happened. And what we saw is that over time, God kept providing. And and how do you know if you're able to teach the Bible or not? Or how do you know if you're called to teach the Bible? Well, the question is, will people listen to you? People won't listen to you. You're not called. You know, for whatever reason, there's people here this morning. There was a time where I wasn't sure there'd be one or two people. You know, and so how do you know if you're called to that? Well, how do you know if Jesus is called or not? Well, he he did everything he said he was going to do, and God blessed him. Now, that doesn't always mean anything. uh, But in in this case, we see Jesus. In verse 1, it says, um, "...every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin." And in the case of Aaron, only sons of Aaron could be the high priest. You couldn't pick yourself because if you weren't born from the right family, you couldn't be it. Uh, so, they, I mean, how many of us pick the family we were born into? How many of us are glad we didn't get to pick because we got a pretty good lot? And how many of us, don't raise your hands, wish that you were born from a different family? I mean, that's the reality. Uh, but we don't get to pick. God does. It's his choosing. Uh, Jesus... Is heaven's high priest. He couldn't be the high priest on earth. You know why? Because he wasn't born as a descendant of Aaron. But what we find is that he was from a greater priesthood. And this priesthood is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we'll get into that in a minute. He was from the tribe of Judah. People that were born into the tribe of Judah were kings. King David was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, he sits on the throne. And so, Jesus was born to be king. But look at this, at his death, he offered himself as the sacrifice for sin. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, is where he's quoting here today, where it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this is God speaking prophetically through the psalm writer about his son, and it says, today I have begotten you. So many times, we would read this and think, oh, well, it's talking about Christmas. He's begotten, the only begotten Son of God. But in this passage, what we find out in actually Acts chapter 13 verse 26 is that he's not talking about Jesus' birth in the flesh. He's talking about his rebirth as he was resurrected from the dead. And in Acts chapter 13 verse 26, it um, talks about this where... uh, Paul is speaking in Antioch, in Pisidia, and he says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. So he's talking to descendants of Abraham, the chosen people of God. He said, And those among you who fear God, because there was a mixed group of Gentiles and Jews. So he's speaking to everybody. And he says this, To you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem, and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the, of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. So speaking of Jesus, they say they read the scriptures every week, and yet because they didn't recognize their Messiah, they fulfilled the, the scriptures that said he came to his own, and yet his own basically rejected him as Messiah, and they had him put to death. Verse 29 says, now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb. Verse 30 says, but God, and I love that passage in scripture, but God raised him from the dead, and he was seen for many days by those who came up with him for, from Jerusalem and Galilee, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that word there means gospel, good news. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it's about the resurrection of Jesus. And that he raised from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus: I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, "You will not allow your holy one to see corruption." And so, all these passages are about him begetting his son in resurrection. And so, he is a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. So, back in uh, back in chapter five of Hebrews. He then quotes verse 6 as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the priesthood was just like this. There was a term limit. What was the term limit? When the high priest died, you needed another high priest. His term limit was set based on the longevity or the brevity of his life. So, as a high priest How long could you be a high priest? Until death. Not forever, like the scripture says. So if he says you are a high priest forever, he's not talking about an earthly high priest. He's talking about someone who is eternal, who is spirit, who is alive forever. So talking about eternal life. So you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what we find in scripture is very little about the priest by the name of Melchizedek. But what we find is that he was a priest before the Old Testament law that set up priests. And in Genesis chapter 14 is an incident where Abraham has just come back from saving his son Lot, I believe. You can check me on that. But as he comes back, there's a group of men that show up and they're kind of mysterious. They show up and they have communion together. They sit down, they have bread, and they have wine together. And as I get there, I'll read briefly about that. Genesis 14, verse 17. So it says, The king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedor Leomer. Sorry, I didn't practice that one. And the kings who were with him, Then Melchizedek, out of nowhere, then this guy, as if we should already know him, says this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. Wait a minute, where did a priest come from? It says, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So Abraham tithed or gave 10% of his income to Melchizedek. And so we find that this man was from a priesthood. And, and so verse 21 says, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from you, even a thread of your sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only that the young man of Eton, and the poor, I don't know why I read all that, that's not about Melchizedek, but my point is, is that as he's talking about Melchizedek, shows up, and they have communion together, and then he gives an offering to to Melchizedek, and so uh, what we find is that in this passage, there's this high priest that shows up and represents. He prays, to, uh, prays for Abram to God, and then he prays about God to Abram, and then he kind of passes off the scene, and we don't know much more about him. Well, in Psalm 10, 110, verse 4, we get this quote in the book of Hebrews about uh, Jesus being our priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king. But what we find in Hebrews chapter 7 is another mention about him. And in seven chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, and Melchizedek, being translated into king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which... Uh, Hebrew, Salem, shalom, means peace. So this king, or this priest, Melchizedek, is called the king of Salem, the king of peace, and the king of righteousness, which many would argue, and you could make the argument that uh, it was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus showing up on the scene. Now some argue that because he doesn't have a birth in scripture, we don't see him being born We also don't see King Melchizedek or Priest Melchizedek dying. We see that he was also a king and a priest, kind of a foretaste of what Jesus would be. So he's not according to the order of Abraham or Aaron. I'm mixing my words. But he's according to the order of Melchizedek. So also, he's a sympathetic high priest. Verse 2 of chapter 5. He can have compassion on those who who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. He had experienced temptation, and if you want to take a look at that, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, Jesus, being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, is raised up out of the water, and it says, the Spirit took him into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and to be tempted. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to take a battle against my arch enemy... I'm working out, drinking the protein shakes, I'm getting built up, I'm getting, uh, what is the word, swole, you know? And then as a result of that, I'm going out to the battle ready like a UFC fighter. Like, you're not mouthing me, you're going down. But this is the battle that Jesus is fighting. Jesus is fighting against his arch enemy and ours, the adversary that stole God's people away from him. In the garden who tempted them to sin in the first place and said has God really said does God really have your best interest in mind? And so all among the while they're in there in genesis. God promises to send a deliverer The seed of the woman Jesus and so from that point on satan said I will not let you defeat me I will not let you destroy me because he's prideful and he thinks he can be god and the whole time he's been trying to destroy the nation of Israel. He's been trying to destroy the leaders of Israel. And now that Jesus is on the scene, hey, this is the one who the plan's going to be fulfilled in. This is Super Bowl. I'm taking this guy out. He's not going to be sinless. He's going to sin, and then he won't be able to save his people. And so he tempts them with his only playbook, by the way. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world's going to pass away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God will live forever. And so... Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but he didn't work out. He didn't take protein shakes, but he fasted. He prayed. He quieted his fleshly desires. And at the time that he got at his weakest, when he was hungry, when he was lonely, when he was tired, what it says there is that Satan shows up, starts tempting him, and he tempts him with those three things. He says, hey, If you're the Son of God, if, then turn that stone into a loaf of bread. And what did Jesus say? He confronted him, he responded with Scripture. He said, Man shall not He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I don't need that bread. And I'm not going to have my will be done instead of God's. And then after that, he tempted him again and he said, Hey. And he took him up onto the pinnacle of the temple, and it was right in front of everybody. Somehow, Satan took him there and put him on the corner of the temple, and I've stood there. It's high, and everybody could see it. It's near the south steps of the temple mount. And as he got up there, he said, hey, Scripture says that if you uh, fall, that the angels will protect you. They won't even let you dash your foot against the stone. Just jump off and prove that you're God, and then everyone will believe in you. So Jesus knew it wasn't his time yet. It was not the time. And so he said, You shall not, he said, It's also written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then he took him to a very high mountain. He said, Look, see all these kingdoms? I have authority all over all of them. Satan said this. You'll notice that Jesus never argued with him. That Satan is the king of this world. He's the ruler. It's, It's run by him, and if you want to see death and destruction around, you can see it. That's his fingerprint. It's ruled by his rules. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever tastes good, do it. Whatever makes you feel like you're on the top of the world, do it. It's all yours. The world's your oyster. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Satan wants everybody to believe that's the way to find happiness. But then you have Jesus up there, and he said, uh, he he said, hey, if uh, if you just bow down and worship me, Satan says this to Jesus, then I'll give you all these kingdoms pretty tempting, because then he gets all the kingdoms, and he doesn't have to die to do it. He's, he's saying, hey, meet the immediate need, don't have to go through the pain, and then you get all that God's already promised you, but I'll give it to you. And Jesus said to him what? He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, he, this isn't for me. I, I, the, he said, depart from me. And so as a result of that, we see Jesus passing all the tests that we've ever been subjected to. He was subjected to criticism, cruelty. He, he was spit in his face. I don't know about you, but if I got spit in the face, I'd be punching, you know, but Jesus didn't. And he's righteous in every way. He's sympathetic. He knows what you're going through, is my point. He knows what you're tempted to do, and he is able to give you grace to obey in the midst of that. 1 John chapter 1 Verse 8 says this. It says, if we say that we have no sin, then we're really just deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But there's grace offered there, there's forgiveness. And so on the last slide I have for you, Jesus is our sacrifice. It's not only our high priest, but he is also the one we come to. And because of his blood poured out, he is our sacrifice. Verse 3, chapter 5 says, uh, Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. But our high priest doesn't have to offer one. He is the sacrifice. And since he never sinned, he doesn't need to make a sacrifice to those who obey, he gives eternal salvation, not a temporary covering for sin. And so uh, in verse 9 and 10, as we close, well, I never read verse 7. It says, in, in the days of his flesh, uh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, meaning Jesus, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience." by the things which he suffered and having been perfected he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him does that mean that Jesus wasn't perfect to start with no the the point is not that he was made more perfect than he already was the the point was that he became able to be a better high priest because he knew what it was like to suffer and he knew what it was like to be tempted yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, he learned what it was like to trust in what God had said, even though it didn't feel like what God said. He was true, if that makes sense. And uh, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so. Jesus is better than Aaron the high priest, and Jesus is better than any man. Jesus is able to, uh, you know, I've heard so many people say, I I would go to church, um, I would be involved in church, but so-and-so let me down. And the reality is, is that's going to happen. If you know me long enough, I'm going to let you down. If you know any of each other long enough, you're going to let each other down. That's reality of human relationships. But don't let that failure drive you away from the Lord. Actually, let it drive us to him because he said that would be so. And then let it bring you to Jesus, who is to be your only hope. Our hope can't be in a spouse. Our hope can't be in our kids. Our hope can't be in our job. That can be taken from us. Our our biggest hope has to be in Christ. So, um, let's close there this morning. Father, I thank you for your word and how it shows that Jesus is better than anything we can put our faith in. A religious system, a hero, someone that we've uh, come to know and and seen them as being the one we want to model our lives after. There's nothing wrong with that. But in all reality, um, even our biggest hero, even the people that we put at the pedestal in our life that have never let us down are going to at some point. And even if they don't, they're going to die. And so, Father, we need hope. We need Jesus. We need you, Lord, to be the one that mediates between God and man and us and God. We need you to cleanse us of our sins. We need you to remind us that, uh, yes, we fail, but you're there to give us grace to overcome those failures and to, to grow. And so, Father, thank you that you in our weakest moments, know what it's like to be tempted and that you subjected yourself. You left heaven, the place of perfection, to be down here with us and to be subjected to all of the hardships that we experience. You watched a friend of yours die. You lived through watching multitudes, multitudes gathered and yet not seeing that you were their creator. And now you sit at the right hand of the Father and you pray for us, in our times of need, and when we don't think we need you. You are dependent upon the Father in every way. And so, Father, I pray that we would see you as our great high priest, that we would spend time with you. I thank you that when we come to you again, after having failed in the same way again, that you don't look at us and say, again, but you look at us and you say, my grace is sufficient. You're forgiven. Thank you for that. We need you, Lord. So, Father, as we go out of this place and as we head into our community and as we live throughout this week, Lord, there are several. There are multitudes. There are people surrounding us where our jobs are. There's people surrounding us in our, in our schools. And they're still walking around covered in shame, weighed down the, by the burden of their sins, the stuff that's obvious and the stuff that encapsulates them when they're in, in the quiet and they're in the stillness and by themselves. Would you help us to represent them to you? Would you help us to represent you to them, to speak into their life grace and mercy, and at the same time to, like our high priest, to pray for them? You are able to meet them in their circumstances and situations. Use us to be your representative and help us to trust you because ultimately you're the best representative. So Lord, thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.